Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 238. My name is Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King. Lord, we are thankful for the opportunity to once again gather together, ambassadors of your name, ambassadors of your kingdom, witnesses to the glory that is Messiah Yeshua, who has been revealed to mankind as the one and only true Messiah who has come into the world, the true bread that has come down from heaven. And we celebrate him and we say that uh, we are privileged to um, speak words after you and to think thoughts after you and to um, be a witness for you in this world. Give us that supernatural boldness, that that holy boldness, that those opportunities to share our witness with others, to share the gospel with those around who um, do not yet know. We know, Lord, that according to the the basically the the spirit of the age, the sense of the urgency of the of the hour that the um, the Lord's return is very very soon. At least that's uh, the consensus of many many believers, including myself. And so, Lord, for that reason, we seek to be all the more circumspect as we um, hasten the day of your coming. Help us to um, be about our Father's business. Help us to continue to look up, look to the skies, look uh, for that blessed hope for your return, keeping our faith in you, not wavering to the left or to the right, but continue to walk the path that you have ordained for us to walk in. Be with us during tonight's study, and we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Welcome, everyone, to these live internet studies once more. My name is Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi, and this study is an hour and a half long, but it's broken up into two segments. The first segment is given over to the topic, uh, Eschatology, a Biblical Study of End-Time Events, and so that's what we're going to jump into right now. We're currently in topic number nine, as you can see on my screen, which is Yeshua's Olivet Discourse, part two, and we're looking through Matthew 24. Let me jump into it right here. And we've basically begun talking about this topic of starting in verse 29 and going down to the end of the chapter. So what we've been doing for this part is I have notes that I wrote, but I prayed about it and I have Believe, I believe that uh, I should be using the notes that actually Pastor David Guzik uh, already put together and made available for anyone online. So we're going to be using those uh, for the second half of this look at Matthew chapter 24, particularly as the verses in Matthew 24, just to give you an overview, Matthew 24, particularly to the way that they are paralleled in Revelation chapter 6. And this is going to kind of push us into an eventually looking at the... Paul, the letters that Paul put the left for us in Thessalonians, first and second, some particular eschatological perspectives there that also parallel Revelation chapter six, as we're going to see. But we're not looking at that just yet. But I, I thought I'd show you this on the screen. Uh, we're also working from this idea that the seventieth week of Daniel, the final seven years of intense persecution and trials and tribulations and judgment that's going to befall planet earth uh, someday soon that final seven years is characterized by as you look at the bottom of your screen the seven seals that go across the bottom which also in i'm sorry the seven yeah the seven seals which also then initiate the seven trumpets which uh, the final seventh trumpet initiates the seven bowls so 
the way I understand the sequence of these is there are seals one through six, and then when we get to the seventh seal and the seventh seal is opened, that seventh seal contains the initiation of the seven trumpets. And then they are played out sequentially over the course of whatever time. And then when we get to the seventh trumpet, that initiates the pouring out of the seven bowls. And according to my understanding of this sequence, the rapture that we're fond of asking about occurs sometime after the midpoint of the week, sometime probably in the midpoint of the second half of the week, but we're not sure, exactly sure because no one knows the day or the hour exactly when that is supposed to happen. But it does cut short the Great Tribulation, and it initiates the Day of the Lord, which is that yellow arrow that you see on your screen right there. The Day of the Lord is basically the judgment of God, and this judgment is reserved for the unrepentant. It's reserved for the sinners. It's reserved for those who refuse God and refuse His truth and His Messiah. So as we're looking at these details, and we're just showing a few, I'm showing you a few different slides to get you prepped for this topic, we're talking about what are the signs of the end of the age and of our Lord's coming. Remember, going back over to Matthew and going to the very top, the disciples themselves asked this question of our Lord Yeshua right here in verse 3. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming in of the end of the age? And what we've been doing is we've been looking through Robert Ben Cameron's book called The Sign, which I'm going to turn to in a moment. There are two chapters that we're particularly pulling some excerpts from. Chapter 14, which deals with the sign of the end of the age. And then chapter 15, which deals with the sign of Christ's coming. And that's per the order of the... The, the order of the sequence of the events that they will actually happen. Even though, um, I'm sorry, that's according to uh, the, the way Yeshua gives us the information later down in the chapter. If you look at the way the disciples ask the question, though, what will be the sign of your coming out of the end of the age? Um, this, he begins to proceed and explain all, all of the details about the coming of the end of the age, and then he tells them, starting in verse 30, let's drop down to that verse where it was earlier, and then let me read that, starting in verse 29, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Right? That's one of the signs. And then he says in verse 30, and then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet blast and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. And my understanding of these verses right here, with these two signs, and with this event, the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds, my understanding is that Yeshua is describing the rapture. He's not describing the second coming where he physically returns to planet Earth, his feet touch the ground, and then he does some activities, such as defeat the Antichrist at Armageddon. I believe that will take place near the end, going back to this chart, sorry, this chart. I believe that that'll take place on this chart near the end where it talks about the God's wrath being poured out, Day of the Lord on the right side of your screen. And that farthest right edge there, that should be the second coming, but not the rapture. So when we go back to this chart, the events that Yeshua just described in Matthew 24, around verse 30 and following, 
that would be the coming of the Son of Man, date unknown, and then the initiating of the day of the Lord, which cut short the Great Tribulation. But touching down on planet Earth and setting up his kingdom, that's that's the end of the seventh week. So let's begin to peel back some of these details. And as I mentioned earlier, and Robert Van Kamen also mentioned earlier, the order in which the signs show up seem to be out of order. And yet the order that the disciples asked the question is the order of when the events should happen. So let's go to Robert Van Kampen's book, The Sign, and turn to chapter 14 and pick up where we left off last week, okay? Okay, so here in Robert Van Kampen's book, as we can see on my screen right now, I just wanted to back up a little bit and explain something that was a bit confusing to many of you. Robert Van Kampen has in his book the two verses that form the questions from the disciples. Point number one on the screen, what will be the sign of your coming? is in Matthew 24. This is the question from the disciples. And then the point number two says, what will be the sign of the end of the age? Indeed, when I turn over to Matthew 24 and back up to verse three, you can see here, the disciples say to Yeshua, tell us when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So when we go over to Matthew, um, to Robert Beckham's book, point number one is what will be the sign of your coming? And point number two is what will be the sign of the end of the age? And then we pick up the reading. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, 1 Corinthians 1, 2. And Robert Van Kampen reminds us that it's interesting to note that the disciples ask their questions in the specific order that these events will occur, which are first, chronologically, and this is according to Van Kampen's understanding, which I am subscribing to at this point. First, Christ will return, and then God will pour out judgment at the end of the age. Likewise, in Matthew 24, 4-29, Christ answers these questions in the order asks, asked by the disciples. Right? He begins to answer all those details when he gets up to verse 29. But then, when we get to verse 30, Christ answers these questions. I'm sorry, but then in verse 30, Christ makes it clear that the signs will occur in the reverse sequence of the events. That is, the sign of the end of the age actually precedes the sign of Christ's coming. So chronologically, the disciples ask the questions in the order of the events, and for the most part, from, from verse 4 through verse 29, Yeshua answered in the chronological events, starting with the birth pangs and the seals 1 through 4 and 5, but then when we get to seal number six, we begin to witness this sign of the uh, sign of the end of the age and then the sign of Christ's coming. So this, the, the signs themselves uh, are a bit out of order. So that's where we're going to pick up our reading. And this is according to, again, Robert Van Campen. So let me scroll down. And um, we already read what will be the sign. And let's now jump down into the sign of the end of the age. So. Remember, the sign of the end of the age precedes the sign of Christ's coming, but chronologically or sequentially, Christ's coming precedes the end of the age, using the end of the age as the end of the 70th week and the Christ coming being the rapture event that we're talking about. And then eventually we'll turn to uh, chapter 15. Let me blow that up a little bit. Oops, go back out. 
uh let's see one two three four five six seven eight i think that's where i wanted yeah eventually we'll look at the sign of christ's coming uh we might get to that this week we might have to wait till next week so let's pick up this part the sign of the end of the age this is robert van campen explaining once again what sign is the sign of the end of the age yet the end of the age doesn't happen until the end of the 70th week obviously so with this uh with the relationship of these two cataclysmic signs now clearly in mind we will now consider the first sign more extensively and will return to the second sign in the next chapter like i just showed you he says it's hard to imagine the stunning effect of this first sign listen up okay the sign of the end of the age the bible uses the most dramatic language in numerous places to describe this sign which is in effect a portent in, in a portent indicating that the day of the lord is about to begin jump over to that time frame here when you look at this time frame when we look at the day of the lord in the yellow arrow it begins with the sixth seal which is the signs in the sky down at the bottom of your of your chart there but if you let your eye wander up to where the arrow is pointing to the yellow where the blue arrow is pointing down it says coming of the son of man date unknown so basically it's it cuts short the great tribulation that's what we're looking at the sign of the end of the age which is the sign uh initiated by the six indicated by the sixth seal of the book of revelation is the signs in the skies the supernatural cataclysmic occurrences that are um indicated by the heavenly bodies the sun the moon the stars etc so let's read about that so we're talking about the day of the lord which is about to begin the lord repeatedly told his people the sign that would announce his terrible day of vengeance a spectacle in the heavens that will make everything that human eyes have seen before pale in comparison and this is why as we're going to begin to see the language why i believe that we're not yet in the middle of the 70th week and why we're not yet at the point where we have seen these events happen yet per the preterists who say that well all of this took place we're just waiting for the lord um, to return and set up his kingdom it's because part of the events that we're going to be reading about on these signs are to indicate an event that has no parallel and has no equal in this regard even though antichrist himself had a parallel in the and figure known as antiochus epiphanies that we read about some time back and there have been many types of antichrists who have been who've come and gone and indeed yeshua says that the end of the age i.e the 70th week will be earmarked by many more false christs right antichrist type figures even including the future final consummate antichrist himself which i believe hasn't been revealed to mankind yet either because he's being restrained by we'll call him the restrainer could be the holy spirit could be the mike uh, the angel michael um could be the church itself we'll get to that when we get to it so let's talk about this sign which is this supernatural event that should not be mistaken meaning should be something that everyone on planet earth would be witness to because why give a sign that only a select few are going to be looking for although when we talk about yeshua's first coming even though it was a sign that all of jerusalem should have been able to witness right when we're talking about the star that the magi followed and things like that indeed only those 
who were reading the scriptures and expecting were indeed witness to that particular sign. But his second coming, by comparison, by contrast or whatnot, uh, this one, I believe all of planet Earth will be witness to. It will be a sign, Van Cameron says, of such magnitude and awesomeness that the most confirmed atheist will acknowledge its divine origin and attempt to flee in terror. I don't think we'll be able to dismiss it. It's simply, well, that's just another eclipse, just another blood moon, that's uh, just another comet passing by, or something like that. Indeed, Van Kampen says, those alive on Earth at that time will see the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness, says Joel 2, verse 10. So let's talk about what Van Kampen describes as the black hole effect. It's hard for us to fully comprehend, he says, the monumental significance of the sign that will signal the beginning of the end of the age. For these cataclysmic events are not simply metaphors. They will really happen. It's no wonder that it will be this sign that cuts short the Great Tribulation that we're reading about in Matthew 24 here. In essence, Van Kampen says, the sign of the end of the age will simultaneously extinguish all natural lights in the heavens, plunging the earth into total darkness. This sign will be accompanied by tremendous worldwide earthquakes so that every mountain and island will be moved out of their place, Revelation 6.14. 6, now, he's got an asterisk next to this statement about the natural lights being extinguished in the heavens. So let's read that real quick so that it's relevant. This is a footnote, basically. He says, It is significant to note that the sign God will give to show mankind that his day of wrath has come. Remember, the day of the Lord is for all of wicked humanity. It's not limited to some form of judgment that's going to be poured out on Israel only, or it's not Israel-centric in its nature. The day of the Lord is a judgment time period that God has reserved and spoken about extensively in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, and it is poured out, yes, upon the Antichrist and his wicked regime and his kingdoms, but because of the, the international nature of the Antichrist's final regime, the what we might call the New World Order or the Eighth Beast Empire, like Daniel described all these beasts, things like that. This beast empire will cover the entire world. And not just the Middle East, but eventually it should encompass everyone in the world who has rejected God, rejected the truth of the Bible, God's word, and rejected Messiah Yeshua as their one and only truth and salvation their only way to be uh, counted as righteous before the Father. So, let's talk about the significance of this sign and the way it will be witnessed by everyone in the, in the world. It is significant that the sign of God will... Uh, uh, that the sign God will give to show mankind that His day of wrath has come will be a sign seen in the heavenlies. This is a perfect counterpart to God's declaration at creation. When he said, quote, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Listen to this. And let them be for signs and for season and for days and years. End quote. That's Genesis 1.14. So we already know from having experienced the Jewish calendars, right? The ball feast that we just finished going through. We already know that the signs in the heavens, right? When the moon cycles around and the way Israel recognizes the new moons and the beginnings of the months we already know that the signs are for seasons 
We know that Passover must be during the springtime, and so it's marked off by a certain time on the calendar that is in conjunction with this, the position of the sun and the moon, etc., etc., and the earth in, the, uh, in its orbit around the sun, i.e. springtime. So the signs are for seasons, but they are also for, I mean, the, the sun and the moon and stars are for signs. I'm, I'm sorry, they're for seasons and for days and years. Yes, that's how we mark off our calendar. But the first thing that God says is they're for signs. So this quote, again, Van Campen reminds us, the lights in the expanse of the heaven were given, in part, for signs. Yeah, at the first coming of Christ, like I mentioned earlier, those lights were significant, especially to the Magi, remember? Because he says, the uh, stars and things like that. The lights in the expanse of the heaven include the heavenly, heavenly luminaries. During the first coming of Christ, those lights were significant, especially to the Magi from the East who asked, quote, Where is he who has been born, King of the Jews? For we saw his star in the East, right? The sign of Yeshua's birth, and have come to worship him, end quote. That's Matthew 2, 2. So Van Campen says, in accordance with the purpose for which they were created, those same heavenly bodies will be used again, along with the sign of his coming, which will be covered in the following chapter, which is chapter 15, to announce the second coming of Christ when he comes to rescue the righteous and to judge the wicked who remain on earth. So in one sense, the heavenly bodies are announcing the end of the age, but in another sense, they're playing double duty by announcing the sign of his coming. And so there is a sense in which someone could say that the sixth seal is the sign of the Lord's coming, the rapture. Others would say that the sixth seal with the sun, moon, stars doing what they're going to be doing are the sign of the end of the age, and then the rapture, uh, um, the the rapture takes place, initiating the day of the Lord, etc., etc. So don't get too confused. We're really just—I mean, the the thing that we can all agree on is that there is this sign indicated by the sixth seal, which we're going to read about here in a moment. The sixth seal of the book of Revelation, chapter six. That's the sign. We could say it's just the sign of the day of the Lord, if you want to. I've heard other preachers and tribulational uh, teachers talk about, well, the sign of the, tribu- of, the, of the day of the Lord is basically the sixth seal, meaning Yeshua's sign isn't really indicated by what takes place in the heavens. But I do disagree. I think that there is a supernatural brilliance that's going to show up, but it isn't necessarily triggered. I'm sorry, it isn't necessarily... Uh, caused by what we would call the sun, the moon, the stars. I believe it's caused by Yeshua's very glory. So let's keep reading. Van Campen says, we're in chapter 14 on page 286 of the sign, this book. When that bewildering event occurs, talking about the sun going dark, the moon turning to blood, and the stars falling from the sky, when that event occurs, unbelieving mankind will panic and desperately seek hiding places among rocks and in caves, because then, I'm sorry, they will then know with horrifying certainty that the wrath of God, about which they had been so often and graciously warned, is about to commence. As vividly portrayed in Luke's Gospel, reread this in Luke 21, there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, right? That's the sign of the end of the, the sign of Christ's coming and of the end of the age. If you want to say there's one sign, if you want to say there's two signs, depends on how you read the scripture. But we've got the signs uh, 
in sun and moon and stars, and upon earth, dismay among the nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear, look what Luke says, and the expectation of the things which are God's wrath, which will soon to follow, which are coming upon the world. And this parallels what Revelation already records as well in uh, uh, chapter 6, which we'll get to in a moment, I believe. So, uh, Van Kempen continues, In striking contrast, however, those of the kingdom of God, we Christians, we believers, the overcomers, will look up with great joy and expectancy, knowing that, quote, when these things begin to take place, your redemption is drawing nigh. Notice this is right still in the context of what Luke recorded in chapter 21 for the Olivet Discourse words from our Lord Yeshua. It's in verse 28. So, I mean, it's a mere few verses away from uh, mentioning these signs where the wicked of humanity are going to be quaking in fear, and yet we are going to be, be looking up with great joy and expectancy. Notice the contrast between our feelings on the matter, our expectancy, our um, uh, understanding of the situation that's happening based on the signs that are being shown to us, and what the world will be experiencing, right? And then Van Campen is going to go on to talk about as that day approaches, right, which is the day of the rapture and the day of the Lord. But I'm going to skip over that part because I don't want to digress too far into talking about the day of the Lord just yet. I'm really focusing on the signs in this short little bit of an excursus before we pick up again where we left off where we're just going kind of verse by verse through Matthew 24. And we left off around verse 29, 30, 31, somewhere around there, like like you can see on my screen right here, talking about the glorious return. So we kind of left off at verse 31. So we're doing this kind of excursus, talking about the signs. Uh, so let me scroll past that and pick up his reading again, where he says... Let me find it here. Scrolling, scrolling. Here we go. The sixth seal. So this is the sign of the end of the age. The sign of Christ's coming and of the end of the age. This is the sign of Christ's coming. The signs happen in the reverse. This would be the sixth seal would be, according to Van Campen, as we're going to see, this would be the sign of the end of the age. All right. The sixth seal. The book of Revelation gives an awesome summary of the sign of the end of the age, which is the sixth seal. As we saw earlier in this chapter, before the Lord takes his saints to be with himself, the unbelieving world will be living in peace and security under Antichrist's persecution. Let me pause and just remind you, according to this chart, at the far left, the Antichrist makes a covenant with Israel for at least seven years. The books might indicate longer, but we who study the Bible know that it should at least include some seven-year language. Likewise, the Muslim world is anticipating that their own Antichrist figure that we call the Antichrist, but they're not going to see him as Antichrist. They're going to see him as their savior, this Mahdi that we talked about in the past, Joel Richardson's personal perspective of who this Antichrist figure will be. They also, in Muslim scriptures, anticipate a seven-year treaty. So with the beginning of that seven-year treaty, as we work our way from left to right chronologically, which is the way time moves, then we eventually get to the midpoint of the week, which is the abomination of desolation, corresponding with around the fourth seal and mass death. That kicks off the Great Tribulation. That also kicks off the the uh, what we might call the, the siege of Jerusalem by the Antichrist and the establishment of the 
mark of the beast and the images that were and and the establishment of everyone having to take the number of his name or something like that but it also kicks off the arrival of the two witnesses on planet earth right because they are said to witness for three and a half years and at the midpoint of the week is chronologically when i when i uh, put them um showing up but germane to our study is as we're getting uh we move left to right and look at the day of the lord and the sixth seal so we're looking at robert ben campen's book here the unbelieving world will be living in peace and safety because of that seven-year agreement that antichrist made with israel but it, the effects will be felt worldwide because he will be this man of peace not just in the middle east but i'm sure he will be largely um, flexing his influence everywhere else in the world so that he can get the rest of the world to get on board with his deceptive program. So, yes, there'll probably still be wars and rumors of wars because Yeshua talked about that. But at the same time, Antichrist is going to be making sure that Israel drops her guard because he needs to attack her unknown, un uh, unaware. So that's the point that Van Campen's trying to bring up. Suddenly, without warning, an astounding sign, he says, in the heavens will appear, announcing God's day of wrath, not just on the Antichrist, but on wicked humanity, bringing terror into the heart of every person bearing the mark of Antichrist. Remember, they've already begun to take the mark at this point in time, and the tribulation has been raging on. Killing Christians and killing Jews has been the thing that will have been um already uh have been initiated at the midpoint of the week so when the sign appears it will bring joy i'm sorry it'll be rejoicing into the heart of the elect of god which as i mentioned earlier is not just christians but faithful jews who are refusing to worship antichrist and yield to him they are included under that label faithful or the elect although if you if they don't name the name of christ eventually they're just delaying their own eventual judgment van campen says at that moment no human being no matter how ungodly and skeptical will fail to realize that god almighty is about to take full control of his creation and render final judgment against evil and we'll talk about why he takes that perspective here in a moment i think he'll flesh it out this will be the sign of the end of the age vividly described in revelation at the breaking of the sixth seal so let's read revelation now we already looked at luke 21 we're going to turn to Joel, uh, and we looked at Joel, and we're going to turn some more to some more passages from Joel, and we might even pull in the book of the books of First and Thessalonians into this discussion. Let's look at this quote from Revelation. Quote, and I looked when he broke the sixth seal. This is John recording what Yeshua gave him, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell from the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, look at what the, what the people do. This is why Van Campen talked about how that no one will be able to mistake what's going on. They don't believe in God, but they will have this awareness that something supernatural is going on look what happens the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains and look what they say according to john remember these are yeshua's words given to john so this isn't just john's perspective this is yeshua's revelation to john and they hid themselves in the caves and the rocks and look what they say <clears throat> 
They said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand. That's Revelation 6, 12 to 17, emphasis added by Van Campen. So, are the peoples of the earth going to be realizing that God is doing this? They may not give credit to God, especially for those who don't believe in God and don't subscribe to God. But the unmistakable nature of the supernatural aspect, i.e. the miraculous aspect. Remember, after the midpoint of the week and the arrival of the two witnesses, signs and wonders will have begun to take place on planet Earth once again. They will be ramped up, not just on God's side, with the two witnesses showing signs and wonders because they've been given that power, like we read about in the book of Revelation, but also the Antichrist himself, like Paul describes in the book of Thessalonians, he is also going to be demonstrating lying signs and wonders. He's been given the ability and allowance by God to perform supernatural signs and wonders. So, the entire world at large will be witness to all these miraculous events once again. The miraculous, the supernatural, will be very, very common again in that day, particularly after the midpoint of the week. Let's keep reading Van Campen. The earth's wicked will immediately recognize the awesome significance of the heavenly signs because they will have already been pre-warned by the third angel's announcements. Without getting into too, many, too much detail, there are three announcements in this in that particular chapter uh and the third angel will have mentioned this back at the midpoint of the 70th week thus john's explains later if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand this is the warning he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of god which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb that's way back in, or that's Revelation 14, and this is part of the judgment that is going to be pronounced a man upon human humans who take the mark of the beast. Revelation 9, Revelation 14, 9 through 10. John continues, or I'm sorry, Van Campen continues. It is that hour of his judgment heralded to all the world by the first angel of God, Revelation 14, 7, of which Isaiah prophesied long ago. Let's again pull some um, day of the Lord sign language from the Tanakh so that we can understand why the New Testament writers use this language the way they do. They are pointing back to the numerous places in the Old Testament that have already been given uh, to explain this day of the Lord and when it initiates and what to be looking for. Isaiah says, quote, In that day men will cast away to the moles and the bats their idols, the images of the beast that, that he forced them to worship or create or bow down to. These idols of silver and their idols of gold which they made for themselves to worship. In order to look at the language that Isaiah uses, which is identical to what John recorded from Yeshua, meaning Yeshua is borrowing his language from the book of Isaiah. But look at this. They will um, go into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. Isaiah 2, 20 and 21. And then we should have some language from Joel coming up pretty soon, so let's keep watching for that too. Van Kappen says, There will be great terror for the wicked on earth, 
who have been repeatedly warned of the consequences of worshiping the image and taking the mark of Antichrist. Remember, the witnesses will be here, and they will also be testifying of the wickedness of the Antichrist and of the truth of God's Messiah and of his word, and they will be warning humanity about the impending doom that's about to befall all of humans. Don't take the mark, and yet people aren't going to listen because they have no faith in God. And so the pick up we pick up the uh discussion again van campen says thus men will faint from fear jesus said and the expect uh and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world so um this is a time period that will be immediately preceding the sixth seal which is the sign of christ coming in of the end of the age right the sign of the end of the age itself van campen continues but for the overcomer the genuine believer who has survived the onslaught of Antichrist, right? The Great Tribulation, and who has carefully watched for the signs of Christ's return. Remember, the disciples asked Yeshua, What will be these signs? They didn't live to see these signs the way that we might live, this generation might be alive when these signs play themselves out. Even though they had kind of dress rehearsals of the persecution, the tribulation, and the besiege of Jerusalem, and the fall of Jerusalem, and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. They had all those events, and indeed will have a greater fulfillment of those events when this Antichrist temple is uh, desecrated, the abomination of desolation, the tribulation is initiated, and the, uh, Jerusalem once, is once again attacked by her enemies. What does Van Campen say? For the overcomer, the genuine believer who has survived the onslaught of Antichrist and who has carefully watched for these signs, there will be blessed hope, great expectation, and a completely different response than what we just read about from the unregenerate mankind. The quote from Luke says, When these things begin to take place, Jesus said, Straighten up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing nigh. It's drawing near, I'm sorry. Luke 21, 28. So it makes sense why the first century disciples and Bible authors had this great expectation of Yeshua returning maybe in their age during the first century because of the what we might call the prophetic telescoping effect of, of end-time prophecy where we have a near-term uh, partial fulfillment and then a far-term total fulfillment. The 70 AD destruction of the temple followed by the 130 AD destruction of Jerusalem, those were foreshadows of what would take place in our age. And so, because the disciples of the first century lived through those events, it makes sense why they had this expectation that Jesus would return when they saw all these things be begin to happen with the, the, the uh, siege, the abomination of desolation, as it were, um, that had already taken place with Antiochus and Yeshua saying that there's going to be another one. Right from their perspective in the future, they didn't know how far into the future. And for us who are futurists, it's still yet future. But um, I'm sure that when the, the temple was destroyed, and when Ar when Titus' armies, the Roman armies, came in and sacked everything, they begin to remember what the Lord had told them, and so they begin to look up and wait for Him to return. Even indeed, when we get to the book of the books of Thessalonians that Paul left. The believers there, that church, because of the tribulation, 
They thought that the day of the Lord had already been initiated and that they that they had what? You ready for this? They thought that they had missed the rapture, i.e. the second second coming. That term rapture and the, that term second coming can be used somewhat synonymously, although they are really two separate events that I believe. But we'll get to that in time. But they had panicked. They thought, we've been left out. And that's why Paul even wrote the letters to them, at least part of the reasons why the letters were written. Don't worry. You didn't miss everything. And then he begins to give us more details. So the point I'm trying to bring up is that we believers have a different response based on the details that have been given to us. It's worth noting also that when Paul wrote the letter to the Thessalonians, that it's entirely possible... Based on the based on the dates when Paul's letters were written, in um, in conjunction with the Gospels, many of Paul's letters were being circulated before the Gospels were even written, and they were certainly circulated and written bef- and the Gospels themselves before the Book of Revelation was written, which gave more detail. So it makes sense why. As more and more revelation was being uh, given via what would eventually be called the New Testament, that the believers in the first century didn't have as much detail chronologically that we have today because we've got the closed canon. All right, let's keep reading Van Campen. After quoting Luke 28, 21-28, Van Campen says, And just as the end of the age will be heralded by this first cataclysmic sign, cataclysmic sign in the heavens, so an even more stunning sign will immediately follow, which is the sign of Christ's coming for the redemption of the elect to which we now turn. And then he's got a little chart there where they don't need to read and then technical notes. So that's the end of the first chapter, which is chapter 14 that we're looking at. Now, let's jump over to chapter 15 and begin to read this. And this is an extremely short chapter, so I'll probably be able to read most of it. The sign of Christ's coming. So the signs are out of order. From the chronology of when they'll happen and that's why the signs were dealt with in the order that van camping gives him 14 the sign of the end of the age 15 the sign of christ's coming but the question that the disciples asked was when will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age indeed if we call that two signs let's pick up van camping's reading here starting with matthew's rendering from the Olivet discourse with the world cast into utter darkness and still in terror at the sign of the end of the age which is seal number six, the second sign, the sign of Christ's coming, will immediately follow. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, Jesus said, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, Matthew 24, 30. And Jesus explained just a few verses earlier, quote, for just as the lightning comes from the east, and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Verse 27. So, what Van Campen is going to build a case for is that the sign of Christ's coming is this supernatural brilliance, which is a very stark contrast to the supernatural darkness that was caused by the moon going dark. I'm sorry, the sun going dark, the moon turning to blood, and the stars falling from the sky. So, let's read that. We've got a a paragraph entitled, A Supernatural Brilliance. After the sign of the end of the age turns off all the natural lights all over the world, the supernatural light of God's holy splendor will return to earth from the east, flooding the world with the radiance of Christ as he returns in power and great glory. The majestic glory of Christ's second coming is the sign 
every true overcomer has looked for since Christ ascended to his fathers from 40 days after his resurrection. Every eye, even the despicably evil eyes of Antichrist and his wicked hosts, will clearly witness the return of Christ. Listen to the words of our master. Thus, John describes the return of Christ with these words. This is the book of Revelation. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, which I might interject is when he uses that cloud language is usually first of all indicative of the rapture event because it talks about riding on the clouds. It doesn't talk about Yeshua touching down or his feet coming down to earth or coming back with the saints of heaven, heaven, the heavens armies to destroy the Antichrist, etc. When it just says coming with the clouds, like we read about in Daniel chapter 7 as well, the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days, right, on the clouds and the, with the clouds of heaven, etc., etc. This is usually the rapture event. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and watch this, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, meaning the wicked of humanity. Revelation 1, 7. Now, this phrase where it says, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, many preterists point to this verse and say, aha, see, the ones who pierced him were the Romans of the first century, meaning they 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 you know poked him in the side, uh, they hung him on the cross and, and stuck a thrust a spear into his side. Right? It was Roman centurions that did that. So how could Yeshua's words make sense unless Yeshua was talking about the first century event with 70 A.D. etc. etc. That's kind of part of their case when it says every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. But I don't make that case when it says those who pierced him. I believe this is an indicative of the wicked representative of humanity who is responsible for his rejection and hang him on the cross. Although it was God's plan to hang him on that cross so that he could offer himself up as a redemption for human beings, right? He was the payment, he was the propitiation, he was the um sacrifice he was the sac he was the um substitutionary sacrifice nevertheless those who pierced him could simply refer to wicked humans who rejected him i.e could be the romans could be the unbelieving jews at the time but theologically simply just be those of us who realize that it's for our sins that he hung on the cross even those who pierced him po poetically it could be even referring to believers because he hung up there for my sins just as well as hanging on the cross for the sins of other humans who aren't believers, right? He hung on there because of the sins of humans, not because of his own sins, obviously. So, don't want to get hung up on that. His return, Van Campen says, will be anything but secretive or secret or unobtrusive. So, um, you know, throw out this idea of a secret rapture, a secret second coming. You know, Yeshua talks about if they tell you, hey, he's out in the desert, go there. You know, like it's a secret, wild uh, rapture that's only for those who go, take off time from work and go out into the desert to witness it. Or he's up in the upper rooms. Hey, you know, it's this hidden kind of behind closed doors event. Yeshua says, no, it's not going to be that way, right? Every eye will see him like the lightning flashes from the east to the west. And using the analogy, that's something that everyone could witness. Likewise, his other analogy that we looked at earlier in Matthew 24, around verse 28 and 29 or so, when he talks about where the vultures are gathered, the, that's where the body is. Meaning, you can see the circling vultures from a distance, indicating that there's something happening, uh, something of significance. 
Van Campen says it will be an unequaled spectacle that every eye will see and that every ear will hear when the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. So there's Paul's words from Second Thess- um, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. And again, Paul was the one that says also that every eye shall see. Where did Paul get that language? He must have got it from uh, Yeshua's uh, description in Math in the Olivet Discourse, which the Gospels had already been circulating by Paul's day in oral fashion, but they eventually got written down as well. So let's keep reading about this event, this um, sign of um, the uh, the sign of Yeshua's coming. When Christ returns, he will judge. He will come to judge all the citizens of Satan's unrighteous kingdom, all who had rejected God's grace by passing Satan's test, choosing to worship the beast or his image rather than the true Messiah of God. But when Christ returns, he will also come to bring deliverance to the overcomers, to all those who put their unwavering trust in him. So we keep reading, so that all would know the true sign of his coming and be able to distinguish it from the many false signs that would be a, that will abound in the last days. Remember, Matthew 24, 26, Yeshua declared that just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, there's our famous verse, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. So Yeshua is describing this brilliance that should be witnessed by everyone. And... This is in contrast to, it seems to be, the limited capacity of the false signs that the false false messiahs will be performing during that time, etc., etc. Van Campen continues, astounding and indescribable as it will be, that vast radiance will be but the precursor and partial reflection of the infinite divine glory that will be revealed in the heavenlies when Christ appears, when every man, woman, and child on earth will see the Son of Man, there's the coming on the clouds language again, coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, Matthew 24, 30. So let's talk about the glorious appearing of Christ. This is the sign of Christ's coming, like we read about in Matthew. Let's back up. Again, I'm going to keep jumping back to verse 3. As uh, Yeshua said, or as the disciples asked, tell us when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So now we're talking about the sign of Christ's coming, which is um, the chapter 15 here in Van Kempen's book, The Sign. In fact, his whole book is called The Sign, right? In describing Christ's second coming, Van Kempen says, Scripture uses a number of dramatic words and descriptions. For example, as recorded in Luke, Jesus said, For just as the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Notice in Luke, he says, one part of the sky, and then he says, to the other part of the sky, indicating kind of the vastness of the brilliance of this light. And since it's supernatural, it doesn't matter that the earth is a globe. When it says the sky, then we know that scientifically the sky covers all of the earth in a 360 degree fashion. Yet lightning is usually localized, but this is not no, this is not mere lightning in a natural sense. This will be a supernatural brightness that must be witnessed by everyone on planet Earth that's under the sky, no matter if you're on one part of the globe or on the other part of the globe, which is the opposite end on a ball. But it doesn't matter because Yeshua's believers are everywhere in the world and they will all witness it. So it will be supernatural. How can 
physically be seen by everyone in the world. No, it's not going to be CNN. No, it's not going to be TikTok. It will be Yeshua's doing that it's supernatural. Let's continue. This quote from Luke 17. It will be just as it will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Luke 17, 24, and 30. The word translated as revealed in this passage of the Greek is the verb apocalypto, which from when we get our word apocalypse, which basically refers, uh, Van Campen says, to a revealing or an uncovering, this word apocalypse, but may also express the idea of manifestation. Similarly, he says, Paul frequently speaks of Christ's appearing, which in the Greek is epiphania, and expresses the idea of a shining forth. We get our word epiphany from this Greek word. A brightness or a manifestation, this idea of Christ's appearing. Some translations even say Christ's brightness or something that effect. Thus, Van Kempton reminds us, Paul exhorts Timothy, quote, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the who is to judge the living and the dead, watch this, and by his appearing, epiphania, and his kingdom in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to those who have loved his appearing, his epiphania, his brightness. That's 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 8. Let's continue. Van Campen says, lastly, appear light appearance, is often used in reference to Christ's return to translate the Greek word phanero, which can carry the idea of lighten or shine as well as, for example, when the Apostle John admonishes believers in 1 John, and now little children, uh, quote, and now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, phanero, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. 1 John 2.28 So, when we take these terms together, Van Kampen says, we get a sense of how dramatic and spectacular the coming of Christ will be. His coming will be a manifestation, a revealing, a sudden appearance. It will be accompanied by a shining brilliance, his glory. Although the second coming of Christ will be a physical and literal return, it will also be profoundly different from his first coming. It will not be a coming in the sense of going from one place to another, but rather the brilliant, shining manifestation of Christ sweeping instantaneously across the heavens when he comes for his own. When the sign of the Son of Man is seen in the heavens, God's glory will shatter the vast blackness caused by the sign of the day of the Lord. So notice the contrast there. Let's keep reading. We've got about eight minutes left in our study here. So let's talk about where this sign and where these details are confirmed for us. We've got witnesses from the New Testament that Van Camp is going to reveal to us. But remember, the Old Testament is the foundation of the New Testament. So what we read about in the New should be backed up or bolstered or already expressed or explained by many of of uh, parts of what the Old Testament gave. I know many parts of the Old Testament were veiled in a kind of mystery, 
And yet, when it comes to many of the prophecies about the end of the age and things like that, God was very explicit. He just outright told the prophets. The mysterious part of it was the near-far, the prophetic telescoping, where what God was giving to the prophet at the time was likely understood by the prophet and the people to relate to the immediacy of whatever events they were undergoing, like, say, exiled to Assyria or Babylon or some type of persecution from one of Satan's beast armies or something like that. And so they were looking for kind of events to happen in their daytime, which is natural. But owing to the fact that prophecy played double duty near and far, now we can go back and turn to those same prophecies and realize that, ah, God was actually giving us this final picture of the seven-year slice of humanity for us to witness what's going to be the culmination of what was already given in the prophecies. So let's look at the New Testament first, and then we'll turn to the Old Testament and round out our look at these signs. Van Campen says, confirmed in the New Testament. I'll just keep reading from this point and try to resist um, pausing. For nearly 2,000 years, faithful saints of God have been looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13. I, I, I do have to interject here. Notice this is one of these places where it just rubs the non-Trinitarians raw to read when Titus when um, uh, the, the verse reads, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is known as Sharp's, uh, Granville Sharp's rule, where we have the same uh, descriptors like adjectives or adverbs or whatnot describing the same referent, the same individual, looking for the blessed open, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, but there's only one person really that they're pointing to grammatically in the Greek, which is Christ Jesus, meaning this is a rare verse that is indicative of Jesus being called God and Savior in one breath. He's called God and he's called Savior because it says God and Savior. In other words, there, there shouldn't be a comma after the word God where it says the appearing of the glory of our great God, comma, and Savior Christ Jesus, as if Titus was referring to two different individuals, but no. But nevertheless, the skeptics are going to disagree like they always do. So let's just keep going for now. Van Campen says, Upheld in that hope by the power of the indwelling spirit, they willingly, quote, share the suffering of Christ and keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, they may rejoice with exultation. That's 1 Peter 4.13. Van Campen continues, Because of God's superabundant grace, Believers not only will rejoice in the manifested glory of their Savior and stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy, that's Jude 4, but will even be actual partakers of that glory, 1 Peter 5.1, compare from Colossians 3.4. Even compromising believers who enter the 70th week will share in that glory, having been made pure and blameless by the refining persecution of Antichrist's great tribulation at the elect of God. Let's keep reading Van Campen here in these last few moments. We might be able to finish a good part of this chapter. Yet the same divine glory that will infuse God's saints will obliterate his enemies, commencing with Antichrist. When we read in 2 Thessalonians 2.8, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. 
the brilliance of his coming is how we read it in other passages. So we've got it confirmed in the New Testament about the brilliance, the, the brightness, the glory of our Lord when he returns and how this glorious brightness will sharply contrast against the supernatural darkness that was caused by the sign of the end of the age when the sun went dark, the moon turned blood, and the stars fell from the sky. Now let's read about the confirmation in the Old Testament. Van Campen writes, Numerous Old Testament passages reveal that the Messiah will come to judge the world, restore the nation of Israel, and establish his earthly kingdom. Although many Messianic prophecies were a mystery even to faithful Jews in Jesus' day, they did clearly understand that the Lord's coming to judge and to reign would be accomplished by or accompanied by great glory. Even in the mysterious aspect, they still had a sense of the asp the the the, the um, magnificence of the aspect of that is the glory of the Lord that will announce these things. Which I might add again as we're entering into events that seem to confuse a lot of people as to are we in the middle of the tribulation? Are we in the seventieth week? Well, we haven't seen the abomination of desolation take place because we haven't even seen a temple put up where the Antichrist can abominate it. So I don't think we're that we're not in the middle of the seventh week. Antichrist hasn't really hit the scene in a public way that would indicate that he signed some form of peace treaty. Indeed, ask anyone in the world today, right now, as of this recording, which is October 29th of 2023 on my side of the world, ask anyone in the world is there peace in the Middle East? And if they say, uh, yeah, well then you have to ask, what planet are you living on? What rock have you been hiding under? Right? Turn on the news. There is not peace in the Middle East right now. Indeed, as of this re recording, there's war in the Middle East between Israel and Hamas. And we pray for that situation over there. But that's just another indication that we're not yet in the middle of the seventh week, in my opinion. There are events that will lead up to the signing of this peace treaty and the initiation of some form of you know a mutual non-aggression pact between Israel and her neighbors whether it's full-blown peace we don't know but it will be something that should be earmarked by enough peace that Israel will probably and indeed according to scriptures kind of drop her guard maybe dismantle I don't want to say dismantle but maybe um uh, kind of shut down the Iron Dome for now and not be so worried about it because there will be some form of calm which will allow Antichrist to swoop in at the middle point of the week and deceive everybody. So, we're well acquainted um, um, with uh, these events. The Old Testament portrayed these events usually with the siege of Jerusalem by like the Babylonians, the Assyrians, or things like that. The, the Babylonians uh, uh, sacked Jerusalem and carted off all the people. And so as they read these prophecies about the Lord returning in glory and things like that, they probably had every expectation that it was going to happen then, but it didn't happen then. Yes, they were rescued eventually. Yes, Jerusalem was restored. Yes, the temple was rebuilt. But God didn't return in power and in glory the way that we read about in those scriptures. Indeed, the temple itself was destroyed once again. Right? It was rebuilt and then it was destroyed again. So let's um, keep reading about this um, event as it was portrayed in the Old Testament. So 
they didn't have a full understanding like we or a better understanding like we do but they clearly understood that the lord's glory coming to judge and to reign would be accompanied by great glory van campen says they were all well acquainted with isaiah's warning to the ungodly that quote in the last days which when we hear that phrase in the last days or at that day or during that day or at during that day or when that day comes and he uses language about either that day or the day or in the last days the achrit hayamim in the in the hebrew that is using an indication of the final seven years or more specifically the day of the lord if it says that day something like that and it's not a single 24-hour time period so don't get confused by the word yom in hebrew it just means a time period the day of the lord actually spans a, a time period that could be as short as five months could be as long as a few years so that's based on uh some of the judgments that are poured out in the book of revelation etc etc when i say five months there all right so isaiah 2 2 talks about that in the last days during god's day of reckoning so we got the word days and the word day they're using um talking in the same by the same author in the same book in the same chapter to describe the similar event sometimes it says last days, sometimes it says day of reckoning like day in singular so that's why i said don't get hung up on the word day as if it's only a 24-hour day and then that's it nope that that doesn't work either because elsewhere it talks about days that's the point i'm trying to bring up all right men will go into the caves of the rocks and into the holes of the ground before the terror of the lord and before the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble verse 19 from isaiah notice that isaiah used the language of the rocks and the holes of the ground etc etc but it is john in the book of revelation that echoes that same language when yeshua talks about how that men's hearts will fail them in fear and they'll be saying to the rocks you know fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the lamb who's about to come etc etc that whole language is that that we that whole language that we read in the book of revelation is lifted straight from these passages out here in the uh, tanakh keep reading so speaking of the old testament saints and the people of god who had access to the scriptures they were also well acquainted with and greatly rejoiced in that same prophet's promise to god's faithful people in the last days remember most of biblical prophecy is israel centric israel is the timepiece of god israel is is his thermometer israel is his uh uh scheduling um agent the one who holds the schedule right the um days of that were special to god god's calendar was safeguarded by israel given to israel to proclaim and to safeguard and so israel's has privy to god's calendar because god gave this calendar to, to israel read leviticus chapter 23 where we have the calendar and all the holy days well along with those holy days we have the prophets of old that were primarily prophets of israel warning israel about what would happen in the future etc etc and yet israel was given this great task of taking the words of god and um with a duty to give these words to the surrounding nations they were not to just hide them amongst themselves but sadly that's basically what they did until the publishing of the bible right with the printing press and the spreading of the gospel and and things like that well then finally the words of god and the words of the gospel and the words of the prophets started going to the surrounding nations like they were supposed to go now no matter where you go in the world we've got these warnings that we can read about and know that it's still israel centric still gonna primarily uh, uh, pertain to israel yes but 
as we are drawn in and included with Israel as believers, we realize where our part is going to be played in this end time event as well. So let's do this. Um, let's see. Let me um, let me see where I want to uh, draw a, a, a close. Let's make a break right here. Right in the middle of talking about these, um, we just broke uh, ground on confirming the Old Testament. And so we're t really having this discussion about the sign of Christ's coming, which, was, which will follow the sign of the end of the age. In, in terms of signs, that's the order that seems to be indicated by a natural reading from Matthew 24 as well as Revelation chapter 6. The sign of the end of the age will come first, which is... Revelation chapter six. I'm sorry. Revelation uh, the 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 sixth sign, the sixth uh, seal. Uh, that's the sign of the end of the age, and then the sign of Christ's coming, which is the supernatural brilliance that follows right after the supernatural darkness. We'll pick this up next week, right here, where you can see your numerous six confirmed in the Old Testament. But that'll do it for eschatology, a biblical study of end time events. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself. Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi, I'm a torture to your congregation, Kayla Tunavada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at graftedna.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Tate Torah Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh, site essentially daily, uploading videos daily. Make sure then to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like, um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on, and be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now, um, uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a uh, live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there and uh, preferably consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions and I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of, of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's jump in where we left off last week. We're reading my notes on Proverbs 
chapter 8, verse 23. We're also including verse 22 just for uh, brevity or just for context. And just to remind you, we're looking at biblicalunitarian.com and their website about God and His Son Jesus Christ. They are a non Trinitarian Christian denomination that follows in the footsteps of ancient Socinianism, which rejects the pre-incarnation of jesus before he came to earth they i'm sorry the pre-incarnation they reject the um uh the um pre pre-existence of jesus before his incarnation they believe that jesus came into the world in the first century at his birth therefore when god talks about or when verses when of the Bible talk about the word which was with God and was God like John 1 1 and um, when we read about um, Jesus pre-existence and other passages which I, I mean I really find it hard to believe that they just have to um, carpet uh, carte blanche ignore all the verses where Jesus talks about I am the I'm the one who came down from heaven I was sent from heaven I'm gonna return back to God um, you know um, I'm gonna I was the one that that was in heaven before no one has ascended to heaven except the one who no one is yeah the one known as ascended except the one who already descended right meaning me um, things like that they have to ignore those verses but they are non Trinitarian so for them God is the only God he's numerically one with the Father meaning God is the Father and the Father is God and that's it he's the only one that's identical to God and yet Jesus is the human agent sent by God and glorified by God exalted by God to sit at the right hand of God in a unique position as the Messiah of the world he's worthy of worship because God did exalt him he's not worthy of worship because he's God he's only worthy of worship because God exalted him but nevertheless he is a human being and the Holy Spirit is simply another name for God. So that's their perspective of the Bible that follows ancient Socinianism. What we are looking at is Proverbs 8.23, where we got the passage you can see on your screen. I, wisdom, was appointed from eternity from the beginning before the world began. And what we're about to do is we already read this earlier, but in my discussion, I bring in their own perspective once more. But first, let's back up just one explanation from got questions where they're talking about how do we understand unitarianism and unitarians and biblical unitarian views of god and contrast those with the trinitarian view so backing up one uh short paragraph gotquestions.org reminds us biblical unitarian views of god are unbiblical because scripture clearly teaches that the son of god existed prior to all creation right we've got john 1 1 through 5 uh we that jesus is truly god from titus 2 13 that i read in my eschatology study and that the holy spirit is distinct from the father matthew 28 19 and continuing gotquestions.org says denominations that fall under the category of biblical unitarianism include besides biblical unitarianism themselves biblicalunitarian.com we've got the church of god eternal conference coggc and the christadelphians they're all um unitarians as well non-trinitarianism is widespread i'll flash a little graphic on the screen and post that shows you some of the many different christian denominations who are nevertheless non-trinitarian like the oneness pentecostals things like that so picking up now i say that being said let us now observe what biblicalunitarian.com has to say in detail about the wisdom of proverbs chapter 8 
the explanation of Proverbs 8.23, provided by BiblicalUnitarian.com, is short enough to be quoted at length in my own uh, notes here. So, uh, we read this a week ago or two weeks ago. Let's Yeah, about two weeks ago, I guess. Or maybe it was last week. But let's read just this part again because it's so short. This is BiblicalUnitarian.com. Occasionally, a Trinitarian... We use this verse to try to support the Trinity and the pre-existence of Christ by saying that, quote, wisdom, end quote, was appointed from eternity. Christ is the, quote, wisdom of God, end quote, 1 Corinthians one twenty four, and therefore Christ was from all eternity. And so when we look at the verse, just real quick, let me jump back over to biblicalunitarian.com. Here's a render from the NIV. It says, I, and then in brackets it says, wisdom was appointed from eternity from the beginning before the world began. If we actually pull the entire uh, chapter up, but focus just on verse 22 and 23, let me scroll down to those two. Blew that up on the screen for you. Verse 22 of Proverbs 8 says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. And then verse 23 says, From everlasting I was established from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. So, it sounds like this entity or this quality or this being, depending on how you're in translating or interpreting Proverbs, this being or this quality either was created at the beginning before everything else was created or it existed with God at the beginning, something to that effect. And we'll get to, remember I said in my own explanation, we'll turn to the Hebrew and the Greek and see if we can peel back some more understanding. But let's first continue reading what Biblical Unitarian has to say. So, continuing where I left off, their quote says, This position has not found strong support even among Trinitarians. And we're going to find out eventually that when I explain my understanding of Proverbs 8, it is one perspective from the Trinitarian camp, but indeed there are other ways that Trinitarians even spin this passage. And so, when time comes, we're going to turn to Sam Shamoon's explanation as is recorded for us uh, at the website answeringislam.org. Sam Shamoon is a former Muslim turned Christian Trinitarian apologist. And he's got an interesting explanation about this particular passage that we'll get to in time as well. That slightly differs from my own perspective, but we're still both in the camp of Trinitarian. So that's why I'm bringing his into the discussion to show it's not just a clean break between Trinitarian and non-Trinitarian. There are actually other slightly different Trinitarian perspectives of who or what is Lady Wisdom. Let's keep reading. So BiblicalUnitarian.com says, they, and they, they, they notice this, and they, they're probably mentioning it so, that, so as to undercut the supposed uniformity of the Trinitarian perspective. This position has not found strong support even among Trinitarians, they say, as if that's a minus for our side, right? We Trinitarians, but it isn't actually. And for good reason, they say, this wisdom in Proverbs was appointed, literally set up by God, and is therefore subordinate to God. So remember, what Biblical Unitarian and non-Trinitarians often resort to, to explain away the Trinity and explain away the equality of Jesus with his Father in terms of having the same essence, right? The same homoousius, the same Greek term there to describe the nature, 
that Jesus shares with his father, although they're two distinct hypostases, often mistranslated as the word person, as if they're um, people like humans, but we're talking about two different hypostatic, I'm sorry, two different hypostases that are unique from one another. So, be um, you know, it's one being of God, but two different persons is how we feel it in English. But biblical Unitarian and other non-Trinitarian groups often will resort to using what's known as subordinationism, which is actually a full-blown heresy in and of itself. That teaches that Jesus, even at his in his nature, is completely subordinate to God in all aspects. But we Trinitarians don't uh, describe our understanding of Jesus that way. In his humanity, he's subordinate to God. And even as the eternal Son, there's this bit of hierarchy going on where the Father is the Father and the Son is the Son, even though the Father and the Son are both eternal and have never ceased to exist, according to the Trinitarian way of understanding things. But Jesus is not subordinate as God to God the Father, who is somehow some greater God. So we're not describing a greater and a lesser God or a greater and a lesser Yahweh like Rabbi Moshe Koniukowski purports. But Biblical Unitarian says, no, Jesus is therefore subordinate to God because Lady Wisdom is described as someone that was set up by God and therefore subordination is built into the description of Lady Wisdom. Carefully reading, they say the verse and its context shows that wisdom was, quote, brought forth as the first of his works, verse 22. Keep in mind that um, Socinianism does not espouse to a created being known as the Word of God prior to the creation of the world itself. That would be the form of Christology that is labeled Arianism and is taught by today's modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses. So, in this contrast between Socinianism and Arianism, which are both non-Trinitarian and which are both heretical according to Orthodox Trinitarian creeds, like the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, etc., etc., Socinianism on the one hand, and I'll put a little chart on screen in post-production so you can see this, Socinianism on the one hand believes that Jesus entered into the world through his human birth in the first century. By contrast, Arianism believes that the Word of God is a creature that God fabricated before creating anything else. So in Arianism slash Jehovah's Witness theology and Christology, Jesus, the human being, pre-existed as the Word of God that God nevertheless created or brought forth as the first of his works. So when Jehovah's Witnesses and Arians engage this passage here in the book of Proverbs and start reading about Lady Wisdom, for them, the language speaks about a creature or a being that God created and brought forth as the first of his works, the firstborn of the creation of God. And then that creature went on to create everything else uh, besides himself. So God created this creature, and then that creature created the universe and the world and humans and everything else like that. And that's the um, uh, Arian slash Jehovah's Witness perspective on who 
the word of God and in the, you know, that's why they say in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was a God. The word was this creature that God created, this demigod, this little God, this lesser God, this mini be, this lesser Yahweh, which is heresy. So don't get that confused with the biblical Unitarian Socinian perspective, which says, no, there's no creature that God created at the beginning of, of all time before time itself was created. There, there wasn't anything like that. There was just God. God created all things, but what did exist, and we're going to read about this eventually, what did exist was this thought in the mind of God, this concept called the Word of God, which eventually became known as Jesus when the incarnation of not the Word of God, but the incarnation of the thought of God. So Jesus existed only in God's mind from eternity past. And so we're going to see later on how this just falls apart. But nevertheless, that's kind of what they hold to. So let's keep reading their perspective from a non-Trinitarian view. If this wisdom were Christ, they say, then Christ would be the first creation of God, which is an Arian belief and heretical to Orthodox Trinitarians. So it's interesting if you put three people in the room and one was a biblical Unitarian slash Socinian, one was an Arian slash Jehovah's Witness, and the other was an Orthodox Christian Trinitarian. You put all three of them in the room, all three would disagree as to the nature of Christ. You'd have a little bit of agreement between the, oddly enough, between the Arians and the Trinitarians when it comes to Lady Wisdom, but then you'd interestingly enough have a little bit of agreement between the Socinians and the Arians when it comes to Jesus not being very fully, truly God. So it depends on how you uh, divide up your argument as to where you're going to get some um, agreement or disagreement. Let's keep reading biblicalunitarian.com's um, explanation about Psalm. Uh, I'm sorry, about Proverbs uh, 8:23. They go on to say that therefore many of the church fathers, and we're going to read the church fathers one of these days. I'm going to do, do kind of like a little excursus. I was just reading through them this week, and uh, it's just amazing to me how many church fathers over and over um, affirm the Trinitarian perspective. And there's a specific verse out of the Book of Genesis, the very first um, kind of um problem verse for um non-trinitarians where god says let us make man in genesis 126 we're gonna pour through that verse through the lens of the church fathers one of these days and you'll see how that over and over the church fathers affirmed a trinit an orthodox trinitarian position but biblical unitarian says therefore many of the church fathers rejected this verse speaking of proverbs as supportive of the trinity among them such heavyweights as athanasius basil gregory epiphanius and cyril all right um and so as if for some reason that means that since they rejected proverbs they're rejecting trinity but this is kind of a um this is a bit of a uh, deceptive um explanation if you don't read it through and follow through the entirety of the the argument that's trying to be presented here um the church fathers that are mentioned there are not this they're not saying that because we reject proverbs as being the as being the pre-incarnate jesus that to be equated with them actually rejecting trinity but biblically Terran almost wants you to believe that without um if you didn't go back and do your own homework and um, research on what the church fathers um, actually believed. 
So it says, we rejected also, but for different reasons, right? As if, hey, the church fathers rejected Proverbs. And so since we're not a Trinitarian, and because um, the church fathers rejected Proverbs as being, Trini as being Trinitarian perspective, then this means that the church fathers must also have rejected Trinity. It's like a form of syllogism. But no, that's a false um, premise. False conclusion drawn from um, uh, a set of premises or uh, arguments. Um, discussions so let's keep reading um taking a concept and speaking of it as if it were a person right lady wisdom is the figure of speech personification so now they're gonna tell you explain to you how that because this is personification it's not to be equated with declaring that wisdom is jesus which again when we're gonna we're gonna see when we get to sam shamoon's explanation it doesn't have to be that wisdom is, in fact, Jesus, at least in the book of Proverbs. But when we get to the New Testament, we find language that does equate Jesus with wisdom, the wisdom of God. And so it harkens back to the book of Proverbs, but it's not exactly the same as saying that the book of Proverbs is, is in fact, speaking of Jesus. In fact, in the end, I'll just kind of tip my hand to you a little bit now. It doesn't even have to be. It doesn't have to be that weighty wisdom in the book of Proverbs is Jesus in order for the Trinitarian positions to still hold true. Right, so that's um, a little bit of what we're dealing with. So yeah, we're talking about a little bit of personification. I'm on board with that. I'm fine with that. But I don't have to draw it to the, to the logical conclusion that biblical Unitarians are going to try and do by saying, quote, personification often makes it easier to relate to a concept or idea because as humans... We are familiar with relating to other humans. They go on to say that personification was common among the Jews, and the wisdom of God is personified in the book of Proverbs. And they conclude by saying, Christ is considered the wisdom of God in Corinthians, ready for it, because of what God accomplishes through him. Not, I might add, because Christ is God. So that's where they're going to draw the line. Is Jesus the wisdom of God? Well, only in an accomplishment personification aspect, Jesus personifies the wisdom of God, and it's because of what God accomplishes through Christ. In other words, it's that whole idea of agency all over again, angel of the Lord, um, the, Jesus being the agent that God acts through. So when we read all those passages in the New Testament where it talks about through him, speaking of the word of God, through him all things were created by him and for him and through him. Uh, John talks about this in his first chapter. You know, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was with God. All things were created through him. John tells us, through this word which was with God and was God, according to the Trinitarian, but the Unitarian is going to say, no, God, Jesus says God didn't create everything, rather God alone created everything, but Jesus was the agent through whom God created everything, and so as an agent, he is personifying all that God truly is. Meaning, wisdom is just a personification of God's. Uh, wisdom isn't really Jesus. It's just. It's just. It's God's wisdom, but Jesus personifies it uh, in a very unique way. All right. So then I go on to say, as regards Proverbs eight twenty three, these are my own notes. We may now summarize the position of biblicalunitarian.com thusly. So let me give you a summary of what we just read in case you got lost. This is my own summary. Biblicalunitarian.com argues that Proverbs eight twenty two to twenty three does not support the Trinity or the pre-existence of Christ. That's it. 
they are a non-trinitarian christian denomination and they believe that proverbs 8 22 to 23 does not support the trinity or the pre-existence of christ which we're going to find later on many trinitarians also believe that proverbs 8 22 to 23 does not support the um view that wisdom is jesus even though they do hold to the pre-existence of Christ, as is described by other passages, both in the New Testament as well as foreshadowed by certain places in the Old Testament. We'll get to that in time. All right, I go on to say that the author of this BiblicalUnitarian.com website um, points out that wisdom is created by God, right? Created and is therefore subordinate to God, which fits nicely, I may interject, with the Arian slash Jehovah's Witness perspective of God created wisdom. And since wisdom is Jesus or the Word of God, then this is proof positive that God created the Word of and the word of God, i.e. God created Jesus as the first of his creation, i.e. a creature, which biblical Unitarian rejects and which we biblical Trinitarians also reject. We reject that Jesus is a creature that was created before everything else was created. So, biblical Unitarians, um, my own... Um, what do I say? Summary of their perspective reads this way. If wisdom were Christ then Christ would be the first creation of God, which is an Arian belief and heretical to Orthodox Trinitarians. So, let's continue. This is my own thought. The author also points out that personification is a common figure of speech in the Bible and that wisdom that the wisdom of God is personified in the uh, book of Proverbs here. Therefore, in my conclusion to their to the summary of their position, the author concludes that the wisdom of God in Proverbs is not Christ, but a concept or an idea instead. So that's my own understanding and summary of their position. All right, so let's keep going. We've got about seven minutes left. These are my own thoughts. As far as I can ascertain from my own personal Trinitarian perspective, these are my own thoughts that I'm reading for you, and for the purposes of this short essay, I'm going to treat the Unitarian position and that of BiblicalUnitarian.com as essentially coterminous. They're not exactly the same, but they have some interesting um, conclusions that they draw. That's why I said coterminous. And thus, we can safely examine the weaknesses of both positions, BiblicalUnitarian.com, as well as just Unitarianism, we can both examine the weaknesses of both positions simultaneously. Therefore, from this point going forward in my essay, I will simply refer to the ongoing non-Trinitarian position by the moniker, or by the name, Unitarian. I won't write it out as BiblicalUnitarian.com, or I won't try to make it some distinction between the two. So I hope that's not confusing to you. All right, let's keep reading. My own thoughts. The Unitarian understanding of Proverbs 8.23 is based on the following observations. So let's just back up and look at, at um, some bullet points regarding um, Proverbs 8.23 itself. 
The verse does speak of wisdom as being created by God. This suggests that wisdom is not equal to God, but subordinate to him. So when we're talking about Unitarianism and biblical Unitarian specifically, we're talking about a non-Trinitarian understanding of Psalm, I'm sorry, of Proverbs 8.23. And so using just Proverbs, this is what's driving their understanding. Um because the proverb speaks of wisdom as being created by God. So it seems like, okay, there's some subordination going on there. Uh, bullet point number two. The verse also states that wisdom was created, quote, at the beginning of his work and, quote, the firstborn of his acts of old, end quote. This suggests that wisdom was created before anything else, but it does not necessarily mean that wisdom is eternal. So again, um, we're going to have to start looking at the language eventually from the Hebrew perspective. So just using those two bullet points, we can say, wow, it seems to be like an open shut case for the non-Trinitarian to say that wisdom cannot be Jesus because of the way that l- wisdom is described as being created and things like that. But is that entirely the uh, the argument in its, in- is that the full argument? Uh, argument in its entirety no not quite let's keep reading some more of my own thoughts and we'll we'll eventually see why i say what i said the unitarian interpretation of proverbs 8:23 is also supported i say by the broader teaching of unitarianism unitarians believe that there is one god and that jesus christ is the messiah and the son of god but not god himself so biblical unitarians and unitarians have some like i said coterminous beliefs there when it talks about the uh, non um, deity nature of jesus himself i might add though that we monotheistic biblical trinitarians also believe that there is one god so we cannot fall for the false accusation that says that we believe in multiple gods or that we believe in um more than one um being of god right even if we just give lip service sometimes what it seems like that yes we believe in god but in the in in reality we're thinking but there are three of them and we just simply call them one or something like that it doesn't work like that all right, let's begin to talk about, in my under perspective, some of the weaknesses of the Unitarian position, uh, the in- Unitarian interpretation. Let me scroll down and see how long this section is. Um, yeah, I think we can read this, and then we'll probably stop at the part where it says Trinitarian interpretation. So let's read some of the weaknesses. It's just about three uh, paragraphs. Uh, so we can read this, and then we'll draw this part of our study to a close. Here's what I had to say concerning the weaknesses. The Unitarian interpretation of Proverbs 8.23 has a number of weaknesses. First, I said it does not adequately explain the relationship between wisdom and God. What do I mean? The verse clearly states that wisdom was created by God, but it also suggests that wisdom is in a unique relationship to him. So we're going to begin to see how, when we read later on in the proverb itself, as well as our explanation about the Logos that John brings in, which draws some of its themes from the wisdom of God that was already portrayed in the book of Proverbs, we're going to see that even though wisdom is portrayed in this role of acting for God and performing actions on God's behalf, like almost in a bit of a um, subordinate role or a bit of an agency fashion, like Jesus does do, like the Word of God does do as well, nevertheless, there are certain prerogatives that God uniquely enjoys and specifically and exclusively employs in the bible 
that um, figures such as the wisdom of God as well as the word of God, I, a.k.a. Jesus, also are described as performing or doing, which gives us this indication that the relationship is not merely one of hierarchy where one is um, uh, woodenly subordinate to the other, you know, indicating that one was created by the other or uh, something like that. We'll get to that in a moment, but uh, let's keep reading. The I go on to say that the Unitarian interpretation, speaking of their weakness, does not explain how wisdom can be both, watch this, created and unique created and unique now i'll have to flesh that out later so don't worry if you do, if you understand if you misunderstand to be sure i say the unitarian understanding of proverbs eight twenty three, like we read a bit earlier is that the wisdom of god mentioned in this verse refers not really to a being of god or someone who shares the nature of god like john 1 1 seems to indicate but rather the unitarian answer is that wisdom refers to an attribute of God rather than a person. Or in the Biblical Unitarian model, wisdom or the Word of God are not just attributes, but they are they exist in the mind of God. They're, they're a thought of God. So let's keep reading my own uh, explanation about their weaknesses. According to this view about the attribute, the wisdom of God is personified in Proverbs 8, but is not a distinct person in the Godhead. I go on to say that this understanding is based on a different interpretation. So we're talking about um, Proverbs 8.23. It's based on a different interpretation of the text and a rejection of the doctrine of Trinity. Let's keep reading real quick. I don't want to... Uh, I don't want to... Uh, I don't want to break off at this point in time, even though we're running out of time. I go on to say, speaking about the weaknesses of their position, this, this uh, second, the Unitarian interpretation is not supported by the New Testament. And this is something I talk about quite often, so listen up. The New Testament applies Proverbs 8.23 to Jesus Christ, per 1 Corinthians 1.30 and Colossians 2.3, which, in my opinion, suggests that the Son of God is the wisdom of God personified so there is some personification but it's a little bit more than that i go on to say that if wisdom is not equal to god then it's difficult to see how jesus christ can be the wisdom of god personified are you understanding if you're not just keep listening we'll keep, we'll explain it later on um i go on to say that the unitarian interpretation that the unitarian interpretation is not supported by the authoritative and holy spirit inspired writers of the new testament is in my experience as a trinitarian christian one of the most significant weaknesses of the unitarian understanding of proverbs 8:23. so keep listening which in point of fact, means, I say, that their interpretation is inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. Let that sink in for a moment, right? Their rejection of the authority of the New Testament passages on this matter, especially in their clearest and, and um, unambiguous fashion, in their clearest fashion, in their most natural sense of reading them, they the the biblical unitarian and by um inclusion the unitarian or the unitarian and by inclusion biblical unitarian interpretation is at odds with the tanakh of old which they often lean on for their own 
um, um, explanation more often than they do the New Testament. But this inconsistency is a glaring error, in my opinion. I go on to say that, in closing, by the way, the New Testament teaches that the Son is a distinct person in the Godhead and is co-eternal and co-equal with the Father. So we've got that kind of that paradox going on, right? Jesus is God, but Jesus is not, the Son is not the Father, etc. You've seen that Trinity Triangle or Trinity Shield, I think it's called. I'll put a little graphic on the screen in case you guys aren't following along. I go on to say the Unitarian understanding of Proverbs 8.23 denies the deity of the Son, and in doing so, it undermines the doctrine of the Trinity. Not that the Trinity itself is something that we must defend because we believe it. It's not quite, that's not quite the way we should approach the matter. We don't defend Trinity because it's something we believe. We defend Trinity because it's something that the Bible teaches. It's not just our denomination or perspective that we're defending. We're defending what appears to be clear biblical explanation on the matter. And even when it's not clear, when we've got ambiguity or, or equivocation, we nevertheless, nest, nevertheless have um, the antecedent theology that was given to us in the Old Testament with the types and shadows of the angel of the Lord, the theophanies, the Christophanies, um, not Christophanies, oh yeah, Christophanies, I guess, and um, the other um, verses that are utilized by the New Testament writers in the from the Old Testament carried over into the New that connect the being of God with the being of Jesus or the person of God with the person of of the Father in regards to sharing the same nature. So that's why we hold Trinity. It's not because well my pastor teaches it so I must hold to it as well. It's, not, well, it's a it's something that the that the creedal fathers constructed very very early on. So I better believe it as a Trinitarian because the creeds um, outline it as, as such. No, that's not exactly why we believe in Trinity. It it is completely biblical. Contrary to what BiblicalUnitarian.com uh, wants to teach. So, their denial of those Trinitarian passages and those Old Testament uh, foreshadows and, 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 and um, um, precursors, etc., etc., their rejection of that undermines the doctrine of the Trinity, but it undermines the authority of the New Testament. And then I go on to say that the Bible teaches that there is one God. Notice it's not just that our pastors teach that there wasn't well, that there's one God. It's not that just it's not just that, well, because the creeds teach it and because the church fathers teach that there's one God, we better believe it as well. As important as what the church fathers brought to the discussion, that's not why we believe there's one God. It's because the Bible teaches that there's one God, but that he exists in three persons, right? Or that he exists as three hypostases. The Unitarian interpretation of Proverbs 8.23 denies the Trinity by teaching that wisdom is not equal to God. And then, let me read this one also, and then I'll draw my study to a close. Lastly, another weakness of the Unitarian understanding of Proverbs 8.23 is that it is inconsistent with the history of Christian theology. Socinianism is a relatively, Johnny completely new understanding of the, of the nature of God that was put together by a couple of Italian brothers, brother, but a couple of Italian um, Christians who rejected Trinity. Um, I think Leo and Faustus uh, Sozino or something. I'll flash the name, their names on the screen in, in post-production. I'm just drawing it from memory off the top of my head. 
Leo and and Faustus, I believe their names are, and so 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 Socinus uh, so or Socini or where we get the phrase Socinian, um, Sociso or something like that. But um, this is a relatively new way of explaining what otherwise the church fathers had held to for um, going all the way back to the first, second, third, and, f and finalized in the fourth centuries. And we'll, like I said, I'll turn to an excursus on the church fathers' position on Trinity, or on, um, yeah, on Trinity, maybe next week, maybe the week after, we'll see. In time, I'll get to it. So I go on to say, the another weakness of the biblical unitarian position or the unitarian as a whole is that it is at odds and it's inconsistent with the early church fathers so um let's read what the early church fathers did have to say now keep in mind there were some disagreements between the early church fathers view of proverbs as is explaining as is say indicating that this is jesus versus today some of today's trinitarian perspectives yes i, I i'm aware of that Biblical Unitarian explained that to us just a bit earlier, but that's not to be equated with the early church fathers' rejection of Trinity, right? They weren't rejecting Trinity when they were explaining that they believed that Proverbs, that the Lady Wisdom in the book of Proverbs was not referring to Jesus in his pre-incarnate form. Um, so, don't get confused. But I go on to say that the early church fathers, as will shortly be seen down below, because I'm going to give a little bit of an explanation, um, shortly seen below when we examine the Trinitarian interpretation, affirmed the doctrine of the Trinity and the eternal generation of the Son. So, as try as as difficult as they try. Uh, it's, it's futile for the non-Trinitarians to try and build a case that the early church fathers were non-Trinitarian. That that case just is it falls at it falls apart at every angle. Um, even though they try, I've heard uh, non-Trinitarians try to build a case by kind of cherry picking through some of the early church fathers and showing how that some of their explanations could either be amb uh, ambiguously taken either way or. Uh, wasn't formal declarations of Trinity or something to that effect. All right. So in closing, I say we're talking about the weaknesses of the Unitarian position when it comes to Psalm or uh, Proverbs eight twenty three. I keep saying Psalm there. Um, I know I uh, take note that the Unitarian understanding of Proverbs uh, eight twenty three is a departure from the Orthodox Christian tradition. Just kind of telling you point blank and being very simplistic about uh, the matter. All right, so that'll do it for tonight. We'll stop here. We'll pick this up next week where you can see on my screen where it says Trinitarian Interpretation. We'll start to write about um, some different ways that Trinitarians understand this figure in the book of Proverbs. Again, there are at least two kind of major different ways to explain it, even from a Trinitarian perspective. But in the end, they don't seriously disagree with one another. They just, they just in the end, they come together and, and affirm Trinity, but... They have different ways of explaining Lady Wisdom and its relationship to Jesus Christ. But that'll do it for a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name, and I'm thankful that I'm on the winning team. And that's not because of something that I've done. It's because of what you have done in and through me. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, not of works lest any man should boast. And so I'm thankful that in your intense love for me, 
you saw fit to send your son to do something that I simply could not do. And that was hang on a cross and pay, pay the debt that I owed and yet could not pay. And so thank you for that finished work. I don't need to add to it and I cannot subtract from it. And so because of what he did for me 2,000 years ago at his first coming, I can look and wait with expectancy for him to return someday soon to gather me back to himself and so that I can eternally dwell with him. And so thank you, Lord, for uh, your uh, glorious love that's been poured out and demonstrated by sending your son and the sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost who allows us as believers to cry out, Abba, Father, which is Daddy God. Thank you for the studies that we've undertaken tonight. Uh, continue to uh, strengthen us and give us a supernatural ability to uh, understanding the words, to understand the words, and to begin to make practical application to put our put feet to our faith so that we can be witnesses and ambassadors for your great kingdom and for your name in these last and evil days. And we will be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen.